We are starting a new series today on the Ten Commandments. Uh, this series will take us all the way through the middle of November. Uh, originally, I had intended on taking the commands maybe two or three at a time, uh, but in consultation with the elders, we agree that this is a place in Scripture to sit and soak a little bit. And so we are going to uh, be studying one of the Ten Commandments uh, in each of our messages. Now, every week, uh, we are going to be looking at a big-picture question. I could have arranged to have an introductory message that addressed these general overview questions, but I actually think that this will provide us um, a twofold purpose every time we come to a message. One will be kind of remember the big picture about the Ten Commandments, about the law of God, and to focus more specifically on one of the commandments. So throughout this series, we'll kind of be looking at the big picture of the Ten Commandments, how they fit in Scripture, and the law of God more generally. However, I didn't think it would be helpful uh, to neglect those overview questions from the outset because there may be pieces and parts that it would be helpful to at least have a cursory definition, something quick that you could refer back to, and maybe it would be helpful as we study through these. So strap your seatbelts on, get your outlines ready, and we are going to go really quickly through 10 important questions, a very quick overview. And Lord willing, we'll be through these questions and into the message today, but I couldn't leave these unaddressed. So here we go. Number one, why should we study the Ten Commandments? The short answer is the Ten Commandments have been central to all historical teaching of the church. And they play a significant role in both the Old and New Testament ethics. So if you're following along, they're central to the teaching of the church, and the Ten Commandments are part of Old and New Testament ethics. Number two, who spoke the Ten Words? You'll notice that the Ten Commandments aren't called the Ten Commandments here in Exodus when we get to it. Later in Deuteronomy, it actually refers back to the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words that God spoke. The Decalogue, ten, the prefix Deca and Logos word. This is the ten words of God. Who spoke them? Short answer, God did, audibly, with his own voice. And he inscribed them with his own finger. These are important in Scripture. They reflect the character of God, and God is unchanging. Number three, what is significant about the pattern of salvation followed by law-giving? So we're going to be in Exodus chapter 20 today. And if you look at 20 verse 2, it says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. He reminds them that he has delivered them, and then he gives the law. So what is significant about that pattern? And the short answer is that is the gospel pattern. The gospel pattern is that we do not work for our own deliverance. We are delivered, and then we obey because God has saved us. God has rescued us. Please, as we study these Ten Commandments, do not think I am laying out a way for you to get right with God. That is not what the Ten Commandments were for. They were given after the people of God were delivered by him, saved out of slavery. And then he gave the law. This is the gospel pattern. Number four, are the Ten Commandments important for New Testament Christians? I'm sure since you've determined that we should study them, you know the short answer to this. Yes. That's the answer. Yes. 
As Thomas Watson says, we are not under the condemning power of the law, but under the commanding power of the law. I think that's really good. We are not under the condemning power of the law, but but Christians are under the commanding power of it. Being a reflection of God's character, there is an unchanging and enduring aspect to these ten words. There may be ways in which ceremonial or civil aspects of the application of these commands are not in effect because Christ has fulfilled them. But the essence of all ten has enduring importance for us, even today, as New Testament believers. Number five, what can we learn from the arrangement of the Decalogue? The short answer is, the arrangement of the Ten Commandments shows us a vertical and a horizontal aspect to our obedience. You'll recall that Jesus summarized the commands with just two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We will see that in the arrangement of the Ten Commandments. Number six, how does Jesus' Sermon on the Mount aid in our interpretation of the Ten Commandments? And the short answer is Jesus did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. We'll have to look at that more in depth when we study that question more in depth later. But in short, Jesus' teaching clarified that the commands were not merely forbidding the external conduct, like don't murder, don't commit adultery, for example. But as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, the commands included something greater, the internal heart of obedience, as in don't even hate your neighbor and do not even lust after a woman or a man. So this is Jesus' teaching. It helps us fully understand and interpret the Ten Commandments from a New Testament perspective. Number seven, why should we obey the Ten Commandments? The short answer, love Love of God for what he has done for us. Remember, he has delivered us. And our freedom, our flourishing, God has designed us in a way that our obedience results in a blessing to us. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One author helpfully reminds us that true freedom, listen to this, young people especially, listen, true freedom is enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. True freedom is found in enjoying the benefits of doing what we should. Number eight, what is the so-called threefold division of the law? The short answer is theologians have typically divided the Old Testament into moral, ceremonial, and civil components. This is one of those things I didn't want to just gloss over. When I say the moral law, this is what I'm referring to. The moral law is a reflection of God's character. It's an unchanging thing because God is unchanging. And typically, theologians have summarized that or seen the summary thereof in the Ten Commandments, that they are uh, an unchanging reflection of the God who gave them. But then there are also these ceremonial aspects. Philip Ryken writes in his commentary, they're like the animal sacrifices, for example, which have been abrogated. It was fulfilled in Christ. There was a shadow that pointed forward to Christ's fulfillment. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he didn't abolish it. He fulfilled what it pointed to. And then there's the civil law, which was designed for the people of Israel. And it has also expired. But for a slightly different reason, and that is simply this. The church is not a state. The church is not a state. We do have a king, and his name is King Jesus, but his kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. It is a spiritual kingdom. 
Therefore, although the civil laws of the Old Testament contain principles that are useful for governments today, governing nations, God's people are no longer bound by their specific regulations. Instead, the people of God are governed today by church discipline, which is based on the moral law and has spiritual rather than civil consequences. We recognize the place of government to give civic consequences for sin, for things that are against our civic law. But in this place, in this kingdom of God, this little outpost of God's kingdom, you're under the discipline of a local church where we are accountable to one another to be obedient to the moral commands of God. Number nine, what is the threefold use of the law? And the short answer is the law is first a mirror so that we can see the sinfulness in our own hearts. As Brother Jim was praying today, you heard him mention to God that we, we, he was praying that we would see our own sinful hearts as we study the law. That is absolutely one of the purposes for the law of God. Secondly, it's a bridle to restrain evildoers. God has given his grace, his common grace to us in giving the law to restrain, to to hold back sin against neighbor. And number three, it is a guide for believers to live by. Once we have been redeemed, once we understand that we do not earn our salvation in the state of grace, in the place where we have come to understand by faith that Jesus has saved us, then we obey out of love and the law is our guide. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And number 10, what are the three parts of a moral event? When we say that thing that somebody did was a moral thing, a good thing, what do we mean by that? And the short answer is that all genuinely moral events take place at the intersection of right character, right conduct, and right goals. Everything good that takes place is not merely good conduct. That's what the the Ten Commandments say. They seem to look at something you can do. But Jesus says it's a matter of the heart, doesn't he? So it's not just that you do the right thing. It's you do the right thing for the right reason. Which is why there are some actions, some external things that are moral in some cases and immoral in others. Which is why the sixth commandment is thou shalt not kill. It's thou shalt not murder. And there's a difference. Because in some cases, the same conduct, the taking of a human life, is not immoral. In the case of self-defense, just war, capital punishment. You see, it's not just conduct that matters to God. He cares about our hearts and the direction to which we are pointed We talked a little bit about this. I don't have time to revisit it, but C.S. Lewis's three ships. Google that, okay? C.S. Lewis, when he's describing morality, says there are three ships or three types of pointing of the ships that are out for voyage. And it's important that they're going to the right place. If you lean your ladder on on the wrong wall, you may have gotten where you thought you were supposed to go, but you find out you had the wrong goal in life. That is important to us as well. When we talk about morality, to what end did you do the thing that you did and from the heart that you did it? All of these are important, and we will discuss them more in depth at a later time. Now, I feel like I've just given you enough to drink through a fire hose right now at the outset, okay? 
So everybody just take those notes, all right? Save them and marinate a little bit, okay? Keep them in your notebook as we continue to study and see as we go through if we don't get a little bit more fleshing out to each of these overarching questions that we've studied today. So our method will simply be this. One of these big picture questions we will flesh out in depth and we will study one of the commandments. Now, in addition to studying these Ten Commandments, those questions will give us some idea, uh, give us an idea of some of the other important topics we'll be covering. So I thought today's big picture question had to be why. It had to be why are we studying the Ten Commandments? And I have four reasons for you today for your notes. Number one, they are foundational to biblical ethics. Why should we study the Ten Commandments? Because they are foundational to biblical ethics. Listen, our whole study of the book of Exodus has this crescendo that has been building up to this moment at Sinai. We've seen God deliver his people from slavery. We've seen him lead them through the wilderness. As they approach Sinai, we remember in chapter 19, if, if you can remember back a year from now, there were these flashes of lightning, there were peals of thunder, trumpets sounding. God was on display in a huge way saying, this is important. This is important. God himself is speaking audibly for all to hear. I want you to notice a striking parallel between God's deliverance of the Ten Commandments and when he called Abraham. Talk about epic moments in the Bible. Look at the parallel in Scripture. Genesis 15, 7, when God called Abraham, God said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. And look at Exodus 20 and verse 2. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Kevin DeYoung writes in his book, At these great epical moments in redemptive history, first with Abraham and now with Moses, and the people of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, God says, in effect, I am the Lord who brought you out of this strange land, to be your God, and give you a special word. Remember, God gave a promise to Abraham in Genesis 15, and here he gives them his ten words. And what God says in these ten words is basically going to be expounded upon in the rest of Exodus, almost all of Leviticus, and then reiterated in Deuteronomy. That's why... These words are so important. Some have likened the Ten Commandments to Israel's constitution, if you will, with all of the rest of the giving of the civil and the ceremonial laws as case law that interprets the constitution for the people. These are foundational. The entire Old Testament ethic is centered around this moment. But it's not just an Old Testament thing. The New Testament re-emphasizes in various ways every one of these commands. We'll examine that more closely when we look at overview questions number four and number six. But it's obvious that God did not come to abol- or excuse me, Jesus did not come to abolish any of the commands. 
And whenever one of the New Testament writers is reaching back for a list of ethical standards, they go right here, right to the Ten Commandments. We don't have time to, to look them up today, but write down 1 Timothy 1, 8 through 10. Paul, when he's reaching and grasping, he describes in various ways the ethics of the Ten Commandments. And then in Romans chapter 13, verses 8 and 9, when Paul summarizes what the law of love is, he says the commandments are summed up in this law. And he reaches back to the Ten Commandments for ethics. I wish we had time to look more closely, but in summary, you can't fully understand biblical ethics without first understanding the foundation of ethics in these Ten Commands. Secondly, we should study these commandments because they are central to Christian discipleship. They are central to Christian discipleship. For centuries, the church has had the Ten Commandments as part of the core discipleship curriculum. Are you in a life group here at Leonardtown Baptist? Challenge one another to learn the Ten Commandments. Do you teach a children's Bible fellowship? Teach the kids the Ten Commandments. Parents, teach these commands to your children. Every one of the Christian catechisms, a catechism is a question and answer designed to catechize, that's a fancy word to teach children, teach others about the, the Word, about the Lord. And every one, both Catholic and Protestant, has a huge section in it of the Ten Commandments. And as important as they have been historically, I fear that in our day and age, they are neglected. Why should we study them? Because they're a neglected part of the discipleship of God's church. According to a USA Today poll, 60% of Americans cannot name five of the Ten Commandments. In fact, it's amazing what they do know by comparison— 74% of Americans can name all three of the Stooges. 35% of Americans can recall the six kids in the Brady Bunch. They can't remember five commands. They can remember all six of those kids. And 25% of Americans can name all seven ingredients on a Big Mac. It's stuck in your head. You're doing it right now. I know you are. Two all, you know, okay, two all beef patties, etc. All right, listen. So we know that there are things people can remember. But the sad news is only 14%. And I found that number to be actually kind of high. I was expecting lower than that. But 14% of Americans can accurately name all 10 commandments. I wonder, how many of you could name all 10 commandments. So take out a sheet of paper and a pencil, and we're going to have a pop no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I saw some of you, some of you were like going to your spouse like, let's go. I, th- I think we should have gone to a different church today. I'm getting out of here. You know? I, I, I don't want to put anyone on the spot, but let me just encourage you today. I know that even as a young adult, I probably would have struggled to name the Ten Commandments, especially to name them in order. Um, It truly wasn't until I started using a catechism to teach Judah that I committed them to memory. 
And so my goal is, if you felt a little pit in your stomach when I said take out a piece of paper, uh, that this series would be an opportunity for you to memorize the Ten Commandments. Let's make it a personal goal, each one of you here today, to memorize them. Now, please know, this is not an effort in rote memorization for the sake of being proud of our knowledge or our Christian pedigree. Brothers and sisters, as straightforwardly as I know how to say it, I believe that an effort in memorizing and knowing these commandments is an effort to know God better and to understand our sinful hearts better. That's because, fourthly and lastly, the Ten Commands reflect the character of God. They reflect the character of God. I gave some commentary on this when I was answering overview question two, that God spoke these, that God said these out loud, that there was inscribing in stone. God wants these on our hearts. He has written them on our hearts, the Bible says in Romans. These commands help us know God and know the sinful nature of our hearts. Listen, at the beginning of 2021, we said that it was our prayer that as Leonardtown Baptist Church, we would grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And so to that end, I want us to commit this series to the Lord in prayer. So will you join me in prayer right now? Heavenly Father, we come to your word this morning um, with our hearts open and a desire um, amongst us to be aware of who you are and how you've revealed yourself to us in your law. As Brother Jim said this morning, your law is perfect. It revives our soul, our souls. Your, your commands are trustworthy. They can make us wise. Your precepts are right. They can rejoice our hearts. The commands are radiant. They enlighten our eyes. Fearing you is pure, and you endure forever, and your ordinances are sure, and they are righteous altogether. So, Father, Our effort to learn and study your law is not an effort to somehow uh, get us in a right relationship with you. So, Lord, I pray today that even as I speak and preach, that your spirit would remind sinners today that because we can't keep your law, we need Jesus. We need a Savior, and you have graciously provided that. But then, by faith, if we've placed our trust in you, Lord, that these laws are our guide They are here for our flourishing. And so to commit them to memory, to to try and dig in as we study these Ten Commandments will be of great benefit to how we live and how we worship and how we treat others. So Lord, would you plant your word deep in our hearts? Lord, would you bless the efforts of this series of messages? And Father, may you be glorified in all that is said and done. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word from Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to continue um, just for this series to use the ESV, and I'll tell you it's for one simple reason. Instead of do not, it says you shall not, and I've memorized you shall not, so that's why we're here in the ESV. Today, Exodus chapter 20, and each Sunday of the Ten Commandments, I want to read verses 1 through 17. I want to read all of them, even though we're focusing on just one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, 
who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. So I'm building a couple of traditions into these messages, and one tradition will be that we read all of the Ten Commandments, and the second tradition is that since I don't know that you will go home and do this with your kids or with one another, we are going to do a little catechism together. This is what we do in our family, and all parents who are here today, you can receive one of these copies. Our ushers at the door have them. This is the kids' version of the New City Catechism. The adult version with the adult answers and other scripture references is $5 in the Elder Book Nook, but these we're giving away to parents for free. Here are the 10 questions that I think are most important about the law of the Lord, and they are so helpful. Number six begins like this. How can we glorify God? And you answer together reading the answer. By loving him and by obeying his commands and law. What does the law of God require? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love our neighbor as ourselves. What is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? Uh Uh-oh. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath. Oh, go ahead to the next slide. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. All right, so that is the one that helps us memorize all 10 in order. Now, the next four questions 
give helpful summaries to children of what is God meaning behind when he gives a command. So what does God require in the first, second, and third commandments? First, that we know God as the only true God. Second, that we avoid all idolatry. Third, that we treat God's name with fear and reverence. What does God require in the fourth and fifth commandments? Fourth, that on the Sabbath we we spend time in worship of God. Fifth, that we love and honor our father and our mother. What does God require in the sixth, seventh, and eighth commandments? Sixth, that we do not hurt or hate our neighbor. Seventh, that we live purely and faithfully. Eighth, that we do not take without permission that which belongs to someone else. And what does God require in the ninth and tenth commandments? Ninth, that we do not lie or deceive. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone. So we have a little thing that we do to help us remember the tenth. Tenth, that we are content, not envying anyone. Okay, that's the rhythm we do that one. So forgive me on that. Now, the next few questions are super helpful can anyone keep the law of God perfectly? No. Since the fall, no human has been able to keep the law of God perfectly. Did God create us unable to keep his law? No, but because of the disobedience of Adam and Eve, we are all born in sin and guilt and unable to keep God's law. Since no one can keep the law What is its purpose? That we may know the holy nature of God and the sinful nature of our hearts and thus our need of a Savior. That is so important. That we know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need of a Savior. Can you see why the Ten Commandments will point us to Jesus Thank you for doing a little catechism with us. We'll do that each Sunday to try and instill these principles in our hearts and to teach our congregation the meaning behind these commands and the purpose of the giving of the law. All right. Now, in the time that remains today, I'd like us to turn our attention to verse 3 of Exodus chapter 20. This is the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, I don't want anyone to think that I'm skipping over verse 1 or verse 2. In fact, our overview questions for the next two sermons are about verse 1 and 2, respectively. Verse 1, who spoke the commands? God did. We'll look further at the giver of the commands. And then in uh, two messages from now, we'll be answering the question about this gospel pattern found in their delivery. That is verse 2. Both of those are super important. I just didn't have time to cram it all in today to this message. So we are focusing on the first commandment, which is you shall have no other gods before me. And I want us to note first that God designed us as worshipers. You see, the God who gave his law understood the purpose for which he created us. We all know this to be true in our hearts, that we are worshipers. We all worship something. God knows that because he is our creator, and creators know the purpose for which their creations exist. 
We were created to glorify and worship God and to enjoy him forever. Our sinful disobedience has skewed our hearts to worship created things rather than God himself. And so God rightly commands that we worship him and him alone. You see, it's entirely possible for you to be a sincere worshiper and sincerely wrong. We can be sincere worshipers of something and sincerely wrong, which is why it is right and good that God command our greatest good first. That is that we worship him. This is why the Lord says, you shall have no other little g gods before him. It's not a tacit acknowledgement of the legitimate existence of other gods, other deities. Rather, God knows that our hearts are prone to worship and even fake gods can hold a power over their worshipers. Philip Ryken says, People worship powerful forces within creation as if they were deities. They are not gods, but only so-called gods. Still, they are very real powers, able to enslave a person totally. As Paul reminded the Galatians in Galatians 4 and verse 8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who by nature are not gods. You are slaves to things that aren't even real. And God knows that. He wants to free us from our slavery to idolatry. The reason false gods have this enslaving power is ultimately because demonic forces use them to gain mastery over their worshipers. Thus, the gods of Egypt held a real spiritual power over the minds and hearts of the Egyptians and also the Israelites. And that is why God took the trouble to defeat them one by one. If you weren't here for the plagues back when we taught those, go study and listen to those messages and hear how God embarrassed the gods of Egypt as he sent the plagues on the Egyptians. It was to break the spiritual influence that it had over his people and thereby show that he alone is worthy of worship. You see, God demands exclusive love and trust. He will not share his glory with another. The text says he is a jealous God. This command has with it a massively authoritative claim. But if you think about it, the rest of the commandments would have no weight whatsoever if there wasn't an authoritative lawgiver. If God was not able to enforce these commands, why would you obey them? Imagine the anarchy that would exist if we had no government, if we had no police, no military, if God's grace and common grace for our good did not provide a restraining power to go behind the law that's given, we would do whatever we want. It would be judges all over again. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And God has the authority to claim our exclusive worship. And by demanding this worship, he proves that he is the one who created us and who is able to enforce the laws that are given. The rest of the commandments are meaningless if you get, number one, wrong. There is only one God, and he demands exclusivity. Exclusivity. Now listen, we wouldn't shrink back from this kind of uh, exclusive thinking 
in a marriage relationship. I mean, just imagine some of you husbands, I'm looking at you across the room. You come home, you say, hey, honey, I've been thinking a lot about our relationship. And, uh, you know, we got something good here, but I also have this other thing going. Is that cool? Like, is it okay if I have this other love relationship with someone else? We certainly do not think um, it wrong for the husband or the wife to share a jealous love for the person to whom they are covenantly committed. When we commit to one another in covenant, it's an exclusive relationship. And so God demands our love and trust. You see, at the essence of this, at the bottom of this, is love for God. God loved his people. We read in Exodus 19 that he rescued them. He carried them on his wings like an eagle. He loves them, but he is testing them and teaching them to love him and how to live lives of obedience and holiness. In this command, God rightfully, authoritatively requires exclusive love and trust. Love, you'll remember, was part of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 5, another important text in the Old Testament. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. There is only one God, and there are no other gods besides him, and he commands that we love him with all of our hearts. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean to love God with all your hearts? Uh, Puritan Thomas Watson provides a little list here if you want to jot some notes. I don't know where on the notepad because it was a very full uh, sermon note page, but write them down somewhere. We can love God for who he is, not just what he gives. Remember to love him for who he is. Love him with all your might. What does that look like? It means to love God with your actions. Love him above all earthly relationships. Jesus says, if you don't love me more than father, mother, children, you're not fit for the kingdom. We have to love him exclusively first and foremost. Love him visibly. Partake, Thomas Watson says, in the ordinances. Come to church. Listen to the word of God preached. Show contentment in the things that he provides for us. Hate the things that God hates. Labor with your strength for him. Weep when God seems absent and be willing to suffer for him. Love the Lord your God with all your might, soul, and strength. The Bible says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And lest we forget, the order, the gospel pattern. We love him, 1 John 4.19, because he first loved us. How did God demonstrate that love? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. God shows us his love in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, the first commandment has not been abolished by the coming of Jesus. Jesus is not another God. He is God. There are three persons in one God, 
The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Question number three. They're the same in substance, equal in power and glory. No, when Christ came, this commandment was not transformed. It was, as Kevin DeYoung puts it again, I think helpfully, transposed. Some of you musicians out there know what that means. It's to take a melody and raise the key. It's the same melody. It's recognizable, but it's just in a heightened key, in a new key. You can hear the same melody. Jesus has taken this command to a higher plane. He said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's an exclusive claim. And then he says, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Later, Jesus would say, I and the Father are one. So, we must understand that this claim of Christ is an exclusive claim. There is a common opinion today that the Bible or that Christ's claim of exclusivity is not relevant, that there are many ways to reach God. Listen, they don't understand the first commandment. This has been a neglected part of our study. We need to remember that God claimed exclusive worship in the Old Testament, and Jesus did the same. Jesus says to his disciples, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That is a breathtaking claim. So Jesus is worthy of our exclusive worship and adoration. Leonardtown Baptist Church, we are not worshiping the one true God in obedience to the first commandment unless we are worshiping the God and Father of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It is through him that we can truly worship and be obedient to this command. So I ask in closing today, have you trusted Christ? Not your parents, not your spouse. Do you have any other gods besides him? You see, this commandment is given in the second person singular. To put that in uh, normal speak, it's not y'all have no other gods before me, like we say in the South. You, you sir, you ma'am, you octogenarian, you young person, do you have any other gods before him? This command is personal. And so ask yourself these two diagnostic questions in close. What do you love and what do you trust? What do you love? Do you love pleasure? Do you love food? What fills your belly? Do you love family? Do you love college football? Did I step on any toes? Do you love it more or to the exclusion of the only exclusive love that's commanded of us? Love the Lord your God with all your heart. The trouble is always a little and. Yes, I'd like to love you, but a little of this, please, for me. What do you trust? Are you trusting in your riches? Are you trusting in your own wisdom, your strength, your health, your civility, your duties, your checklist? 
Or do you trust in Jesus Christ, the only Savior who came to be obedient for us and live the life that we couldn't live and die the death we deserved to die? So my prayer is that by the grace of God, you have found yourself yielding wholehearted allegiance to your creator, the God of this universe, by humbly submitting to the way he has ordained for you to be in right relationship with him, and that is by faith in his son, Jesus Christ. Nothing would please God more today than for you to lay aside your trust in worldly things, your love for worldly delights, and love him with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and seeing and believing that he has loved you enough to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you. That would mean that you have seen the law for its intended purpose, that we know the holy nature of God, the sinful nature of our hearts, and thus our need for a Savior. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for sending Jesus to be the Savior of the world. John 3.16 says that you, Father, loved the world in this way, that you gave your only Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Heavenly Father, you have made a way for us to be in a right relationship with you. To be obedient to this command is to trust Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that by your Spirit, you would instill in the hearts of people who are here today their need for Jesus Christ as Savior. Lord, there are many in this room who have already placed their faith and trust in him. Lord, I pray that you would remind them of your claims on them, on us. We as believers belong, body and soul, in life and death to God and to our Savior, Jesus Christ. You have bought us with a price. Lord, may we, in obedience and love, follow your commands and worship you exclusively. Father, not be uh, worshipers of created things, but worshipers of you alone, through Christ alone. So, Lord, I pray that you would draw our hearts into obedience of this command, not to earn salvation, but because you have saved us. Lord, I pray now that as we continue in this time of worship, that you would be honored and glorified exclusively and above all things. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.